welcome to the latest www.ianabernethy.com podcast. In this podcast, we're going to be discussing Anko Itosu's 10 precepts of karate. In this podcast, we'll be looking at Anko Itosu's 10 precepts of karate. Itosu was the creator of the Pinan Hian Kata and was responsible for introducing karate onto the Okinawan school system. To make karate more suitable for children, Itosu is said to have watered down the karate he taught to them. And as part of this, he started teaching kata without their applications so that children could gain the physical benefits of kata training without uh, being irresponsible and giving them knowledge of the violent and brutal methods kata were created to record. It's my view that Itosu intended to foster two types of karate, the original combative art and the new children's version. However, as we now know, it was the children's version that really took off, and the ramifications of that are still being felt today. Itosu's modifications enabled the art to spread, and it's arguable that karate would never have spread to mainland Japan and from there to the west without his modifications, uh, but they undoubtedly meant it was a declawed version of the art that was popularised. In 1908, Itosu wrote a letter outlining his views on karate and explaining why he felt karate should be introduced onto the Okinawan school system. It is this letter and the ten precepts recorded within it that are going to be the subject of this podcast. Now, there are many uh, English translations of this important document, but unfortunately they vary quite a bit and it can be difficult to determine which ones are correct. Now, you would expect some variation when moving text from one language to another. However, some of these variations are not just different ways of saying the same things, as you would expect, but are often express uh, very different sentiments. Uh, now, most of these translations are done by martial artists, and I therefore can't escape the suspicion that they may be uh, inadvertently, or perhaps even deliberately, putting their own views on karate into their translations. Now, there is a 1938 book called Karate Dok Taikan, and this is a superb book, really good, that contains material by masters such as uh, Funakoshi, Mabuni, and Otsuka. And it also contains uh, relatively good quality photographs of Itosu's 1908 letter. Uh, so, what I did recently was I scanned the pictures of the original Itosu document from the book and sent those scans without any uh, background information to one of the UK's leading translation companies. Now, as non-karateka and professional translators, I felt they would be able to give an accurate and uh, unskewed uh, translation. And the translation company got back to me and informed me that the document was written, and this is their words, in a very old literary style, um, and hence was difficult to translate, um, even for professional translators. Uh, now, this may also help explain why uh, so many of the existing translations vary so much. You know, it's obviously not a straightforward document to translate. Um, the translation company contacted a specialist based in the USA uh, who was able to accurately translate the document and the scans were then forwarded on to him. And it's this translation that's included in this, uh, this podcast. Uh, so the translation we're going to discuss was taken from scans of Itosu's original handwritten letter. Uh, the translation was done independently by a professional translator who is a specialist in this kind of work. Uh, the translator was not a martial artist and therefore had no specific view to promote. He didn't even know the document had anything to do with karate when I sent it to him. Uh, and I've therefore no reason at all to doubt its accuracy. Um, and that's not to say that other translations are uh, necessarily inaccurate. Um, this translation is certainly similar to others, as you would expect. However, there is no denying that in parts the one I commissioned expresses different sentiments to some other translations. 
So what I would encourage you to do is com compare the existing translations and decide for yourself which you feel more, uh, make more sense and which you feel uh, are likely to be the most accurate. Um, so anyway, we'll now move on and share the uh, translation that I commissioned uh, in full. Karate did not develop from Buddhism or Confucianism. In the past, the Shorinru school and the Shoreru school were brought to Okinawa from China. Both these schools have strong points and I therefore list them below just as they are without embellishment. 1. Karate is not merely practiced for your own benefit. It can be used to protect one's family or master. It is not intended to be used against a single assailant but instead as a way of avoiding injury by using the hands and feet should one by any chance be confronted by a villain or ruffian. 2. The purpose of karate is to make the muscles and bones hard as a rock and to use the hands and legs as spears. If children were to begin uh, training naturally in military prowess while in elementary school, they would be well suited for military service. Remember the words attributed to the Duke of Wellington after he defeated Napoleon. Today's battle was won on the playing fields of our schools. 3. Karate cannot be quickly learned. Like a slow-moving bull, it eventually travels a thousand leagues. If one trains diligently for one or two hours every day, then in three or four years one will see a change in physique. Those who train in this fashion will discover the deeper principles of karate. 4. In karate, training of the hands and feet are important, so you should train it thoroughly with a sheath of straw. In order to do this, drop your shoulders, open your lungs, muster your strength, grip the floor with your feet and concentrate your energy into your lower abdomen. Practice using each arm one to two hundred times each day. 5. When you practice the stances of karate, be sure to keep your back straight, lower your shoulders, put strength in your legs, stand firmly and drop your energy into your lower abdomen. 6. Practice each of the techniques of karate repeatedly. Learn the explanations of every technique well and decide when and in what manner to apply them when needed. Enter counter withdrawal is a rule for torite. 7. You must decide if karate is for your health or to aid your duty. 8. When you train, do so as if on the battlefield. Your eyes should glare, shoulders drop and body harden. You should always train with intensity and spirit as if actually facing the enemy and in this way you will naturally be ready. 9. If you use your strength to excess in karate training, this will cause you to lose the energy in your lower abdomen and will be harmful to your body. Your face and eyes will turn red. Be careful to control your training. 10. In the past, many masters of karate have enjoyed long lives. Karate aids in developing the bones and muscles. It helps the digestion as well as the circulation. If karate should be introduced, beginning in the elementary schools, then we will produce many men, each capable of defeating ten assailants. If the students at teacher training college learn karate in accordance with the above precepts, then, after graduation, disseminate this to elementary schools in all regions, within ten years karate will spread all over Okinawa and to mainland Japan. Karate will therefore make a great contribution to our military. I hope you will seriously consider what I have written here. Anko Itosu, October 1908
Okay, so I think the first thing we should probably mention is that on precept four, uh, when the translator says a sheath of straw, uh, they're referring to a makiwara. Um, now, it would have been fine to leave that word untranslated, but the uh, the translator, not being a martial artist, didn't do that. So that we know that's what he means. When he's saying about conditioning the hands and feet, he, he means you know using a makiwara. Um, now, okay, so this is obviously a very important document, and I'll leave it up to you to uh, sit back and ponder the significance of each of these precepts. However, I would like to briefly discuss some points of interest. Now, the first thing that strikes me is that the karate Itosu was proposing for Okinawan schools, uh, watered down though it was, was obviously not intended to be wholly uncombative. Uh, certainly seems to be selling the art not only on its um, health benefits, but also on its combative use, as well as its ability to produce uh, effective fighting men for the military. So the main difference between the two versions of the art would seem to be one of approach rather than content. Uh, by this I mean that both groups were essentially taught the same kata, but only the adults would be taught the application of those kata. So it was also perhaps Itosu's original intention that the children would eventually be able to move on to learn the true art, after receiving a thorough grounding through training in the children's version of the system, uh, when they reached adulthood, and hence that they would be, in Itosu's words, uh, capable of defeating ten assailants. So certainly Precept 10 would suggest that. Um, I also find it interesting that the opening line, uh, which was karate did not develop from Buddhism or Confucianism, makes it clear that karate is not based on Buddhist or Confucian principles. Uh, now, Itosu obviously felt it important to establish that right from the off, that the art he practiced was not an offshoot of these religions or philosophies. Uh, I think this is important as some mistakenly view the art from Buddhist or Confucian perspectives. And sometimes followers of other religions are put off studying karate as they believe it to be based on these Eastern religions. And it also tells us this is just fundamentally not the case. Uh, precept 1 makes it clear that karate was not for a, a square go or a consensual fight, but instead for civilian uh, self-protection. So just to remind you of that, the bit I'm referring to is where he says, uh, It is not intended to be used against a single assailant, but instead as a way of avoiding injury by using the hands and feet should one, by any chance, be confronted by a villain or ruffian. Now as a modern day martial artist, I think it's important, not to mention fun, uh, to train for both environments. Um, training for a square go is a lot of fun, but we need to understand that a square go and self-protection utilise different methods, and what works well in one area won't automatically uh, work in another area. Now Itosu obviously understood the difference between these two, as he marks the difference in his first precept. Now as, as examples of these differences, closing the gap, uh, skilled footwork, uh, guards, feints, uh, varied combinations, uh, are commonplace in a consensual fight but are irrelevant for civilian self-protection. Uh, when we're studying kata, which is a record of the original fighting art Itosu is describing there, uh, we need to ensure that we understand that kata was created to record methods for civilian self-protection. Um, it's when people view kata from a square-go perspective that they misunderstand kata's nature and hence come to incorrect conclusions about how kata should be applied. Uh, precept 6 um, encourages us to study bunkai, which you know, the applications of the kata movements, and explore the appropriate use of such bunkai in combat. So just to remind you of that one, it says 6. Uh, practice the techniques of karate repeatedly. Learn the explanations of every technique well and decide when and in what manner to apply them when needed. 
Now many karateka don't include bunkai study and practice in their training, and hence are not training in accordance with this principle. Itosu also makes it clear that we must also decide when and how the techniques of karate should be applied. Now even people who study bunkai often fail in this regard. Uh, knowing what a kata motion is for and knowing when and how to effectively apply it are two very different things. Uh, to my mind, the only thing that can truly help us to decide how techniques should be applied in a real fight is to practice applying those techniques in a live environment. It's for this reason that kata-based sparring is fundamental to my four-stage approach to kata, as it ensures the theory of kata is put into practice. Um, if you're not familiar with kata-based sparring or um, the four-stage approach, there's a, an e-book you can download from the website uh, called An Introduction to Applied Karate, which will expand on those concepts a little bit more. Okay, so back to the uh, the precepts. Uh, the final sentence of the sixth precept, which is enter, counter, withdraw, is a rule for torite, is another one I find interesting. Uh, torite refers to grappling, I mean, it literally means seizing hands, and Itosu's enter, counter, withdraw rule would seem to be anti-grappling advice. So if we're grabbed, we can't immediately flee because the opponent's got hold of us, so we need to get in there, do a serious amount of damage, and then get out of there. Now this is sound advice for civilian self-protection and it's totally in accordance with the nature of the karate um, that Itosu explains in Precept 1. You know, it's designed for civilian self-protection. So if somebody grabs you, get in there, do some damage, then get out of there. Uh, Precept 7 advises us to decide if karate is for health or to aid our duty. So as he says, you know, you must decide if karate is for your health or to aid your duty. And by aid your duty, I'm sure he means practical use. Now Precepts 2, 3 and 10 make reference to uh, the physical benefits of karate, whereas precepts 1, 6, uh, 2, 8, 10 all make reference to karate's combative views. I therefore don't think that Itosu is saying that karate training has to be for one or the other, rather that we should be clear as to our training objectives you know, at any given point. Um, and I also feel he's marking the difference between the, like the child's version of the art, which is predominantly health-orientated, although it may progress into combative training, and the true combative art that would you know, be combative right from the onset, the art he would originally practice and the art he taught to his adult students. Now, Precept 8 advises us to train in an intense and spirited way such that we will be prepared for the severe and unforgiving nature of combat. So to remind you as to what that one was, uh, 8. When you train, do so as if on the battlefield. Your eyes should glare, shoulders drop and body harden. You should always train with intensity and spirit as if actually facing the enemy and in this way you will naturally be ready. Now many recreational karateka fail to train with sufficient intensity and spirit, and are hence not effectively preparing themselves for real combat. Now this isn't a problem so long as a recreational karateka is aware of that fact, and whilst the training may be fun, and it may make them a little fitter, it won't prepare them for the, the demands of self-protection. Now as we have seen, it, it also advises us to be aware of whether we're training for health or combat in Precept 7. So, you know, it, it makes that, that, that clear that we, we need to be aware of you know, what level we're training at and how we're training. Being prepared for a real physical confrontation um, has a lot less to do with technique and theory and a lot more with being able to turn it on in an intense and explosive way. And I think that's what Precept 8 is there to remind us of. Uh, what I find interesting is that to my way of thinking, Precept 8 runs contrary to the advice given in Precept uh, 9. In Precept 8, it also asks us to ensure we train with intensity and spirit, whereas in Precept 9, he advises us to train with moderation and to avoid using up uh, our strength to excess.
I guess it could be argued that we can uh, train with intensity for moderate periods. Um, however, to my mind, true intensity in spirit can only be developed and tested in austere environments. In training, our intensity enables us to push beyond our limits and our spirit will keep us there. If training always takes place within our physical and psychological comfort zones, we will be woefully unprepared for combat, which by its very nature is incredibly stressful on both fronts. All technique, knowledge and potential combative ability will be rendered redundant if we don't prepare for combat by inoculating ourselves to the mental and physical stress that always accompanies combat. Um, all serious martial artists should be in good physical condition, um, but the first few seconds of a live fight will instantly make us feel like we've already used our strength to excess, and we need to be used uh, to working through that feeling, and this fact should never be ignored. I mean, to take an extreme example, I personally know of someone who suffered a heart attack that was induced by the stress of impending combat. Uh, they immediately collapsed and were unable to protect themselves. Um, in, in less extreme ways, too, the body can easily fail if we're not adequately conditioned to deal with psychological and physical stress. Now, it's obviously important that we don't harm ourselves in training, and we should gradually build up the intensity of our training to the levels needed to be an effective martial artist. And now, if it was Itosu's intention to communicate that point, then I agree. However, the instruction that training should be a level that will not turn our faces red suggests to me that it's encouraging always training at a moderate intensity level. Uh, so on precept 9, I find myself disagreeing with Itosu. <laughs> um, a fact that would be unlikely to cause him to lose too much sleep if he were around today. Uh, however, on all other technical points, I think Itosu's guidance is very valuable and that his 10 precepts uh, give us a great insight into the original nature of karate at the time when it started to shift into the, uh, the modern version. Uh, so Itosu's Ten Precepts uh, is unquestionably one of the most important documents in karate. To understand kata and the true traditional combative art of karate, is it important that we study the words and the guidance of the people who formulated the art. And I hope that you found this fresh translation of Itosu's Ten Precepts interesting, uh, and that you will, uh, as Itosu advises, seriously consider what is written. Uh, so thanks for listening in again to this podcast. I hope you found it of some use and that you can listen again and look over Itosu's precepts and analyse them for yourselves. Um, yeah, so thanks once again for listening in. I really appreciate all the support that these podcasts have been getting. Uh, as always, any feedback you'd care to give, you can contact me at ian, I-A-I-N, at ianabernethy.com. And uh, yeah, well, that's this for this month, and I'll speak to you all soon. Uh, thanks once again. Bye now.